Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. We have a fabulous show for you today, but before we get there, I must apologize. Last week, I was feeling a bit frisky and did two podcasts, but they both kind of had audio issues I came to, to fully appreciate after publication, and I blame this partly on my 18-month-old son. So the interview with Scott Phoenix of Vicarious had a little bit of hiss in the background, which I'm sure you may have noticed, and that was because my son Cole got hold of my digital recorder, messed around with all of the buttons, unbeknownst to me. And change the settings. Anyhow, if it was a bit hard to hear last week, that is why. And just so you know, this transgression did not go unpunished. Cole has been sentenced to 10 minutes of hard labor with the Mega Blocks. So justice served. And then on the other show with Scott Galloway, well, the program I use to record calls usually over the telephone. They just work better. And I think he was uh, in a bit of an equi room as well. Anyhow, Sincere apologies if you found the audio annoying from last week's episodes. Thank you very much for bearing with, and fear not, because this week we are back to normal service, which we will get to right now. Yo, technology, what is it all about? I would say that that was like a very good first experience, but by the way, by the time I was 30 or 31, I had lost my fortune entirely because I had left it in tech stocks and then the bust happened and like my bank account went like depleted by 95%. On this week's episode of Danny in the Valley, we bring on Sukinder Singh Cassidy, one of the top female founders in Silicon Valley. Her latest company is The Board List, which places women on private and public tech company boards. And given that this is 2018, she is right at the heart of the Me Too mayhem and is helping all of these companies who are frantically trying to de-dude their boardrooms. And The Board List is actually her third startup, so she just has a wealth of experience. She started a video shopping company before that was a thing, as well as a fintech startup before fintech was really a thing. She's raised boatloads of money for, for her various adventures over the years. She has a contacts book that is really the who's who of the technology world. And obviously, she's learned some very valuable and sometimes hard lessons. So we talk about that. We talk about what works and what doesn't for startups. Why we may be on the cusp of a huge change in the complexion of corporate America and Britain. And why women are the new unicorns. That's right. So, without further ado, I give you 
Sue Kinder. So, where do we start? You have a very interesting career, but maybe we should start what you're doing now with Board List. What is it and why are you doing it? Sure. The Board List is a curated talent marketplace where effectively women can get nominated and then discovered for boards. I mean, relatively simple idea, right? The idea that we talk about more diversity and how it leads to better performance in the boardroom, yet to this day, there are no solutions to help solve the problem of diversity in the boardroom. And so that's what the board list does. When did you start it? I started it in 2015. The website launched in 16, but in 15, it started with about 50 tech leaders who joined me and agreed to nominate great women they know for board service. And so in about three weeks, we had people like Reed Hoffman and Dick Costell and others send me a spreadsheet of their favorite women. And then we launched uh, the initiative at, uh, at one of the big tech conferences in the summer of 15 and just said, hey, look, come on, come all. We think we can get great people to curate great people. And if you have a board that you're looking to fill, you should want to come check out this list. It's like a kind of fairly elementary idea or concept. Why do you think there is a need for something like this? I think the need is pretty simple. I mean, so if you just step back, I mean, we talk about board diversity as sort of a gender problem, but let's just step back and look at boardrooms in general, whether you're private or public. If you're public right now, if your boardroom hasn't been disrupted already, it sure as well will be in the next 24 months, right? You've got digital disruption. You've got activist shareholders who think that boards are relatively complacent about things going on in their companies. You've got scandal, a la Harvey Weinstein, right? You've got a new customer, the millennial customer, and wait, right behind the millennial customer is Gen Z. And so there are all of these new skills and experiences required in the boardroom. Yet the average tenure of a public board is north of seven or eight years. And so when you think about how fast things are changing, boardrooms need kind of robust and new skills. So that's thought, experience, gender, skill, customer, right? All those voices need to be in the boardroom and they're missing. In private boards, there's just white space because the average private board is dominated by venture capitalists. Which is like 99% male and white. But even before diversity, there's just no independence in the boardroom. And so as somebody who's an operator and who's built many companies, I've always been shocked at the time that a founder most needs help on the business model, on the customer set, on how to think about his own employees and culture, that the only people sitting around his table or her table are white males who've never run businesses. In private companies, there's an opportunity to diversify the board with skills, experience, right? And interestingly, early in your company's evolution, when there's still so much to be figured out, why wouldn't you bring diversity of thought, experience, gender, all of those things into the boardroom? So why is pretty obvious. But one of the things that I think is so interesting about this issue, because I covered the tech industry here from 2000 to 2002. Yeah. It was like my first job in journalism. So you knew my first company, Yodley, probably. I remember it. Yeah. Um, and so coming back, it feels like things have become more kind of almost ossified in the way that the whole, the the, whole system works. The firmament of the, the valley and the tech industry. And to your point of what you were just saying, that's a bad business. Yep. I, I always try to figure out why that is because this is a place that prides itself on being, you know, progressively you know, thinking outside the box and being the smartest guys in the room. The same thing you've said, I find equally fascinating. Myself included, I am part of this industry. But for a group of people who think of themselves as the most innovative in the world, it is interesting that we have our own ways of working and our own stereotypes. We're so sure this formula works that we just keep executing it. 
even when the data would tell us that the formula actually maybe needs fixing. It just tells you how cultures get created and how when something is successful, it's actually very hard to disrupt anything, including the disruptors, right? (laughs) Um, But to your point, I think things became ossified. And then I think what is most interesting about the time when the board list started, you know, started at 15, and I always think about this, and I'm sure you do too, that when you start a company, you never know if the timing is on or off or what have you. In 15, people were talking about kind of the need for But I imagine, stages. I mean, I wasn't here, but I imagine it was it was like a low boil, like it was it kind was of in the background. It was a low boil. It was post-lean in. I give Cheryl a lot of credit for sort of bringing back the conversation of gender in the Valley. She's one of the very first people to do it and got a lot of grief for it, by the way, when she first sort of came to the market with lean in, which was more than tech. It was a movement. But so there's a low boil going on, but, you know, increasing headlines. I was frustrated. You'd see all of these kind of headlines that were sort of like, where are all the women in tech? It was a low boil. And then I think all that's happened over the past two years is we have been disrupted. We've been disrupted, largely speaking, by scandal. Events. In company cultures, yeah. in, you know, in talent, in boardrooms. So all of a sudden that ossification, I mean, it's just like something that was calcified is sort of like breaking and crumbling. And the board list has really benefited from that, but, you know, has become even more timely as a result. Are there stats around the kind of gender breakdown of boards? Yeah. Private or otherwise? Because like in the UK, this has been a movement for a long time, especially for, on the big company in FTSE 100, FTSE 250. And it's something like, I think... A quarter of FTSE 100 companies now have women on their board. Which is progress. And in, and I would say in the UK and Australia and even Canada, there's not quite a quota system, but I think often there's like a report or explain. So there's a lot yeah. of pressure for people to make this way, not just to one woman on your board, but to 30%, right? To multiple women on your board. In the US, according to public company stats, we're somewhere around 22% of uh, all board seats, not boards, but board seats are taken by women. In the private sector, the numbers are way worse. I mean, by our estimate, seven out of every 10 private boards have no women on their board. Zero what, women. Zero, zero. Forget about board 70% seats, all male. 70% of boards are just entirely male. Roughly 20 to 30% have only at least one woman on the board. Forget about multiple. So if you were to change that from boards to board seats, the number goes down dramatically. Because if you think at boards, it's seven out of every 10. If you actually added up all the board seats somewhere like 9-10% at best of all board seats in private companies are women. And by the way, in that number, of course, you have to include female CEOs and female venture capitalists. So when you think about how many independent seats are truly held by women in private companies, not many. But to be honest, there's many companies who don't even take advantage of the private board seat, right, of the independent board seat, which, as I said, in and of itself is is a starting place for the conversation, which is why don't you have an independent person on your board? I was doing some reading before I got here. So you've been kind of working in male-dominated industries for a long time. Yeah. So could you just give a brief kind of history of where you started and how you ended up here? Sure, sure, sure. I started my career, well, I grew up in Canada. I moved down to New York after college and worked for Merrill Lynch, which was pretty male-dominated. Wall Street. Wall Street, investment banking in New York and then in London. I moved from Merrill Lynch to News Corp, a division of News Corp, B-Sky-B, British Sky Broadcasting, the big satellite broadcaster, mm-hmm. you know them. Also pretty male-dominated. Yeah. Just to be clear... Very good experiences, both of them. I mean, you know, I have to give a shout out to the men who mentored me because I actually didn't have a bad experience in either of those industries, despite what people say. Quit my job in 96 and went skiing and traveled for a while and ended up in the Valley, mostly because I want to start a company and I didn't know how. So I figured I'd just move here and it would figure itself out. 
And when I got here, I ended up at a small company, I won't say who, where I did actually have a bad gender experience, which we can talk about if you want. Quit that job in six months, ended up at a company called Jungly, which was my first job. Because of that experience. Because of that experience, which is what's so interesting. And it's what led me, one of the things that led me to start the board list. Uh, went to Jungly, which was an early kind of startup in the e-commerce space. It got bought by Amazon. What year was that? I got here in 97. By 98, I was at Jungly. By mid-98, Amazon had bought it. Spent a year at Amazon. How much did Amazon pay for it? Or was that ever public? Oh, my goodness. I think in high, it was like $120 million or something. And in Amazon stock. Attempt, in Amazon stock. These are the days, right? I always laugh and say to people, like, I had my first hit when I, you know, my stock in Jungly kind of converted to Amazon stock and I moved to Amazon for a year and then four years later. So we, did you think like, you're like, I'm in my twenties, I'm a millionaire, I'm set. I would say that that was like a very good first experience. But by the way, by the time I was 30 or 31, I had lost my fortune entirely because I had left it in tech stocks and then the bust happened and like my bank account went like depleted by 95%, like a true story. How was that personally, that Um, experience? You know, it's so funny. And then, well, yeah, that we should get back talking about the worst stuff. So first of all, on the one hand, of course, it was like very heady. Like, you know, I remember... (laughs) I remember I bought like a used Mercedes when I was 27 years old convertible because I could, you know, the converse is though I was single, I was young, it came and it went so fast. It really did because by the time the company went bust, I was already working on my next startup, which was Yodely. I was not liquid, you know, it was go, I was working my butt off. And so that money came and went at the time I was devastated, but I had no time to be devastated because I was working on my next startup, you know? And all it really taught me is that money comes comes and goes. You know this, right? And in the Valley in particular, the correlation between skill and success and serendipity and success are different. I have been skilled at many things where I never made money. I've been serendipitously many places where I did make money. And what you try and do is just do your best work. And somehow over the course of your lifetime, it works out. And when you see people who have success after 20 years of working here and, you know, what are you just say, good for you. And when you see people who have serendipity, you say, good for you. You know, now do something good with that. Um, So all that taught me is that money comes and money goes. And it was probably a good experience for me to have that happen to me at a young age because I'm like, whatever, I've covered, you know, I went on and had a great career and, you know, and by the way, I probably would have been far wealthier if I just stayed at Amazon for 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I feel like I don't ever regret the decision to leave Amazon and start my first company, Yodi. Yodi was a fintech platform, uh, the first kind of aggregator of data, financial data. You know, today we think about financial apps all powered by, you know, your bank account data, whatever. Yodi was the innovator in that space, if you recall. I left at year five, they went public at year 15. So it was a long journey 15. to exit at year 15, but it did. Like, I'm very proud of the fact that I wow. was kind of part of the backbone or fabric of financial t- of fintech innovation. Then I went from Yodley to Google. I went to Google pretty early to go be the first GM of Local and Maps, which also turned out to be a really fun thing to do. Google Maps. Was Yahoo Maps still a thing? Yahoo Maps and and MapQuest were both the dominant players. And so I went because I actually wasn't going to go to Google because after Yodley, I thought I would start another company. And I remember Omid Kordistani, who's the chief business officer at, at Google for from inception yeah. to, you know. Is it Twitter now? Chairman of Twitter. But, yeah, you yeah. know, like from zero to 26 billion. I mean, that's a good ride. Yeah. Um, anyway, he, Omid had said, you should come to Google. And I was like, Google's too big. And he called me seven months later and he said, I have the greenfield opportunity for you. AOL has MapQuest and Yahoo Maps has Yahoo Maps. Yahoo has Maps. And we have no product. And all the Yellow Page companies are calling us. People are calling us and saying, like, what are you going to do here? 
took me all of two weeks to figure out that that was a pretty big opportunity. And I quit my, I quit my job at Yodely, my startup, and I went to, to Google. So I was at Google for six years almost. I worked with 10 engineers to get as the business lead on local and maps. We built that and launched it. Had a bunch of other kind of business development. And then I moved over to Build International. So ended up running APAC and LATAM at Google for six years. And then quit my job. Spent time at Excel thinking what was next. Excel Partners. Yeah, as a uh, CEO in residence and decided I want to be an entrepreneur again. I was the CEO of Polyvore very briefly. Polyvore is a UGC fashion and lifestyle community site. Yahoo bought for a good sum of money a few years later. Right. And then I started Joyous, which was my own startup, video commerce, you know, trying to go after HSN and QVC. Uh, ran that for five years. How was that? It was good and it was challenging and it was frustrating way too early for its time, kind of like right. Yodely, but Yodely on the one hand made it all the way. Joyous got sold for not a lot of money because we were just way early and started without without a lot of tailwinds, quite frankly. I mean, I think of starting a video shopping company in 2011 and at the time it seemed well-timed, but you could start that company now and it would be well-timed. Well, because you think about Amazon Alexa with the, you got it. the screen. Oh my God. And like Amazon started a video commerce effort right when we were, you know, midway in, in uh, Joyous. Facebook video didn't even take off until probably 2015. We had right. no tailwind. YouTube was really not good for shopping. I say it was great because we actually built a great company, and I'm so proud of what we did. And, you know, I, I mean, as you can tell, like, I love being the innovator. I love being early. I love, you know, but I've just, other than the board list, I've always been way too early. I mean, you know, <laughs> Joyce was early, didn't have a great outcome, but it had an outcome. Yeah. I'm proud of that. And we got further than anybody else in the space. Lots of startups died along the way, and we got... And you raised a scale. decent amount of money, no? Yeah, we raised 50. You raised the money from all the Sand Hill uh, Yes, raised the, from Sand Hill and Strategics. And then, um, you know, Yodley raised over 100. But wow. got public, but took a long time. Yeah. And then the board list has raised... In two years, we've been bootstrapped entirely. We just raised 300000 in seed money. To be honest, that brand is probably more well-known in two years right. than Joyce was in six. And that's this is what I mean about serendipity and timing and between like a great entrepreneur and the market, the market wins. So how do you make money at Boardlist? Is it effectively a kind of a headhunting platform and you take a fee on placements? So today it's a discovery platform for talent. So we take make much more of our money at the top of the funnel, which I think is right until we scale. At scale, I think it will be a headhunting platform and it will make money on recruiting fees and subscribing to the data itself. Mm. The reality is today we take much more money um, off the top, meaning sponsorships, brand revenue. We do have a corporate membership. VCs are members and corporates are members. But to be honest, they're not really paying us for the right to search, even though they can. They're really paying us for education in the ability to use the brand and be an endorser on the brand, promote women onto the platform. So individual usage is free. If you are an organization or corporate, you're paying some sort of membership fee to be associated with the board list. As we are scaling, and we believe we're a discovery platform, the, the much bigger thing for us is that we're influencing the entire market, market and creating kind of more opportunities for women and driving more board demand. That's the primary metric we track. Board and we, demand. And number of How candidates do you track on that? the platform. We track all the open searches on the platform. So to give you some sense... The board list in the first two years had 400 plus companies search on the platform. The average major headhunting firm in the United States will do 300 searches a year. So although 400 doesn't sound like a lot in the board space, which is incredibly fragmented, even doing a thousand searches would be bigger than any platform that's out there. So we track whether or not we're increasing demand for women on boards because that's the hard thing in this space. People think the hard space is knowing who the great women are. 
it's not we're a marketplace like we feel like supply is not the problem demand is the problem you need to have more companies who want to have diverse boards supply is not the problem men who are looking for women on their board will tell you that supply is the problem because they all think yeah. they want cheryl sandberg on their board yeah. i'm like okay i mean not everybody's getting cheryl or marissa or susan Wojcicki, even somebody like me i already sit on three public boards i mean i don't have any more board capacity so if all you want to do is to go to your first order network and tap the same women again and again, you can say there's not enough talent. But if you are willing to look at a curated source of talent where the people you know who are great leaders are recommending to you great talent, you're going to pretty quickly find that there are a lot of amazing women leaders out there who've yet to be discovered. So what's the disconnect? Uh, the disconnect is a couple things. I think the disconnect on private company boards is founders are so busy that they don't prioritize diversity. It's so hard to recruit when you don't have momentum yet, right? Let alone worrying about creating a diverse pipeline. That takes work and effort. I think founders perceive that having an independent person on their board is scary when I think it's actually a great hedge and the smartest thing you can do in a, in a board full of venture capitalists. And you need somebody who's a dispassionate or disinterested. You need dispassionate and an operator. I mean, it's so interesting that Kevin Given from SHIP, who's a great CEO, you know, SHIP right now is contracting. It's been in the news. And he's quoted as saying, like, you know what I wish I'd done differently? I wish somebody had told me how important profitability is, not just growth. Like, who do you think would say that in a boardroom? Why not a venture capitalist? This comes to the mores of what the Valley has long been devoted to, growth. There is a reason I'm building the board list differently than I built Joyous in, in Yodley. I can tell you both of those places I was far more oriented towards growth than profitability and growth, right? So... I mean, the venture capital model is predicated on growth. There's a whole other, you know, that's a whole other podcast and mm-hmm. topic. The mindset of entrepreneurs and venture capitals, everyone's like, success is measured by the size of your next round, how much you can raise, yeah. what, right? Not by, are you profitable? Did you grow? Yeah, you're always, I always feels like there's, if you're trying to build a company, you have one target. But if you have venture capitalists who want to see growth and valuation, their target is potentially very different. Right. If you think that, your job is to create the best next round's valuation, and that is a multiple of growth. I get it. So I think the disconnect is founders are really busy, and stopping to prioritize this takes effort, right? And you don't really realize how much the effort will pay off until you're in trouble, and you're like, wow, I wish I had that on my board. The converse is at public companies. I think public companies have stale talent. I think you have board members who sit in those jobs for a long time in terms are not enforced or shortened. And so you have these long tenured people in jobs where as board members, companies need these new skills. And so, and the thing that has pushed pushed them to um, change over the board now is digital, right? So the place you see all the opportunity diversity, stats that say the majority of those new seats in the S&P 500 are going to women. So as the boards are turning, oh, really? over, there is progress that people of color and women are disproportionately getting new seats, but those seats need to turn over. And boards need to be good about identifying the new skills they have and being regimented in their board terms. And it's women and people of color because just... It's sort of like they're the unicorns. So think about it. If you could get digital disruption and gender diversity or ethnic diversity, why wouldn't you? Like, in some ways, it's a plus, 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 right? So now when you see new seats for digital board members, you often see, and we'd prefer is a woman. People want digital talent and talent that represents their customers if they're female or their employee base. or And they always say, and by the way, if it could be a woman, we'd really appreciate that. Because you know what? Why don't we just say it? A woman senior leader is the new unicorn. So there's PR, but also... There's real value beyond yeah. just sort of... So, so they're still coming in and screening women for 
functional industry skill set, right? Like this comes from this person's a digital native and they're good at marketing or BD. But the fact that they're also a woman and bring additional perspectives to the boardroom is kind of what's happening right now. So I would say the disconnect is closing, by the way, but it's closing at a faster rate on public companies. On private companies, we still evangelize. What about in venture capital? If venture capital is kind of the grease for yes. the Silicon Valley machine, yes, throwing all the money at all these companies and kind of helping them grow, if that is 99% male and white. Yeah. Look, you know this as well as I do. I think two things in venture. Number one, one the way to change the numbers faster is to have more female, more women start funds. And we're seeing that, you know, whether it's Aspect, whether it's Cowboy, whether it's Kristen Green. And by the way, not only are they starting funds, those funds are having huge outcomes. I mean, look at Kristen's success. We need more of that, please, because that will kind of drive people to understand that women make great venture capitalists. Number two, I think every major VC is looking for their female partner. So I think they're all feeling pressure. Number three, what's missing? Pressure from limiteds. You need limiteds to say, if you do not make Their investors. Yes. The institutions. Yes, institutional investors need to say. And you're starting to see it publicly, right, where people like BlackRock say, if you do not have a woman on your board, we're not going to vote in your favor. We need limiteds to say, you are not getting our money for your next fund. Right. So, well, BlackRock is saying that that's obviously because they yes. own, they control Yeah, they own just about God. everybody, right? <laughs> so BlackRock is saying at one extreme, we need limiteds to act the same way with regard to their venture capital partners because they are the client. But I would be remiss and less than honest if I didn't say that presenting solutions hasn't been enough. It really has been a backlash that has yeah. led to people finally saying they're going to do things differently or take action. Yeah, because otherwise it feels like it's kind of a bit of a corporate social responsibility. Like, yeah, we should really do something about the fact that it's a bunch of dudes. Yeah, it goes around. Yeah, and no one really, there's no urgency. There was no urgency. No, I think scandal has created urgency. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. 
That's stamps.com. Code program. You mentioned you had an experience that helped kind of point you in this direction. When I first got to the Valley, I accepted a job at a startup. Super excited to come. Had been in two, as you pointed out, very male-dominated industries. Yeah, because I would just think if you're in Wall Street, yeah, you got to be ready for any, anything. Yeah, right? you'd think so. But you know, I had this, I had this great boss at in Merrill Lynch. He called himself Hank the Crank Michaels, and <laughs> he was the youngest person to make MD at Merrill Lynch in the Fig Group, in the Financial Services Group. And he ended up being my boss. He just told me to work my butt off, and I did for him. And then pretty quickly, I got rewarded, and he would put me on all these great assignments like IPOs and so on, even though I was super junior. So he actually really mentored me. And then at Sky, I also was, you know, mentored and promoted by the CFO and the CEO into a great job and promoted. But what I was going to say is when I got here, I was created to a startup. My second day on the job, my boss told me I scared the secretaries. What does that even mean? Exactly. And, you know, I'm 26 or 27 years old, and I've had now four or five years of career experience, and it's all been positive in these super male-dominated environments where people sort of embraced my aggressiveness and my style and were just like, run. And here I am, and I'm like, like, to your point, in one of the most, you know, democratic places and sort of innovative places in the world, and the second day on the job, I do not know what I've done wrong. I used to, I remember thinking like, did I go to the bathroom the wrong way? Did I slam, <laughs> you know, did I slam the bathroom door shut in a way I didn't know? I, so he has, he had me thinking about what I'd done wrong on my second day on the job. And from there, it was all a downhill slide. I remember I was hired to do BD and I kept getting increasingly junior tasks. Not that there's anything wrong with junior tasks, but as somebody who... Brought in to do business development. Jobs, yeah, right. for, yeah. He, I was doing marketing collateral. And I was like, wait a second. I just came from two companies where like, they just couldn't wait to give me more. Like they're always like, hey... You're like a 20-year-old yeah. acting like a 26-year-old. So we're just going to give you more great yeah. stuff. And I saw this very volatile male with whom my boss had a prior relationship who would take temper tantrums at the office. And and he was just kowtowed to. I asked my boss about it and I challenged him. We were standing out in the parking lot and we were both at our cars in the dark. And I remember this distinctly. I was like 26 or 27 years old. And I was like, but why? And I was going, and he was like, you're like the rookie on the football team, Sukinder, and you need to be coached on how to perform. And I'm like, I don't understand. Nobody's ever told me I need to be coached. But I think somebody came in to do sexual harassment training, ironically, at the company. And I asked for a one-on-one with them and I described my situation. And I just said, am I getting discriminated against? And they didn't really have a good answer for me. I'm sure they weren't going to say to me as the contractor, vendor to the company, oh, yes, this is happening to you. But I really thought, honestly, genuinely, I'm failing. I'm not meant to be in Silicon Valley. Maybe I'm not great at biz dev. And I was pretty close to quitting and leaving. And lucky for me, I called a headhunter, you know, who called me, and I interviewed for a job at Jungly, and I met these five Indian founders, all male, by the way, who were super smart, super candorous, offered me a job in product management, and so I quit my job and I went there. And I think on day one, I arrived at Jungly. And they're like, yeah, we know we hired you to do product management, but we're launching this new comparison shopping engine and we really need somebody to do biz dev. So I ended up doing biz dev anyway. I ended up being great at it. Amazon acquired us six months later. I was one of the key employees. I got to go to Amazon. I got to go do biz dev and work on the first generation of marketplace. My entire career was built in biz dev. But if I had listened to that first right. signal, I would have just left. And so... 15 years later, when it was all that narrative and it was 2015, I was like, wait, I've had a great run here. People have invested me and given me great opportunities to be great. It would be terrible if other women got the message that this place is not for you because, to be honest, I've thrived. But if I think back to my first signal, I was like, wow, if I'd taken that signal, I would never have had the career I had. So what's happened to all these young women who hear or who have a venture capitalist who puts a hand on their butt or 
go into a job where they're told they're too aggressive. Like, if that's what you're told, then you might just leave and never be here. Yeah, and that was, in yeah. some ways, the reason I started the board list. I'm like, like, I know enough to know it can be great here. And I know just enough to know that if I had that experience, when I hear these other stories, that they're likely not just true, pretty disheartening. Yeah. If you're early in your career. If it's early. If it's early, that's the thing, right? By the time I started the board list, I was late. Like yeah. I had enough confidence, I had enough success, enough people had treated me right. And I mean, and you know, and that's also true. Like when the narrative is all negative, that's also unfortunate because I mean, there are a lot of successful women here that will tell you about all of the people who've taken a chance on them. I was reading Sheryl Sandberg, obviously she's done Lean In and that's a big organization yeah. now and everything and else. Option B, yeah. She just launched this thing called Mentor Her. Yeah, that's right. It seems almost like a, um, I don't know if reaction is the right word, to me too. Are you worried at all? She seems to be worried about this idea that men are just scared now Yeah. to like be in a room alone with a woman just in case you never know what's going to happen, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And that, that that is also... A risk. Like the pendulum has swung too far the other way. Mm-hmm. That seems to be her concern. What do you think about that? I think there's merit to that concern in a couple of ways. Number one, I think men are genuinely scared. Even I'm scared. I don't feel that I could comfortably share every single one of my opinions on this topic on Twitter without getting... Well, Twitter's also uh, just a... But without getting reamed out by someone. (laughs) And I'm a woman who's largely seen as (laughs) pro-women. So I can imagine if that's how I feel. Imagine if you're a man and you want to offer anything. So I think it's very hard to say we want men to be part of a solution. But then if a man feels like the only thing that happens if they open their mouth is they get shamed... That's not really a way to invite discourse, right, and solution building. The pendulum has swung, and I think it's a scary time for men. Now, by the way, there's a lot of very good self-reflection going on. I mean, I've heard from men who's like, wow, I now think back to college and think about, did that girl really say yes? And so, like, that's not just scary. That's just, that is good reflection for us all, right? There is a risk right now that I think Cheryl's been appropriate in addressing. I think the reality of all of these situations is two things, and I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. Number one, men need to be part of any solution because not only are they in positions of power, there's a lot of great men out there. I mean, we, you know, the problem is the exceptions get all the publicity, but I think most men genuinely care and want to know what the right thing is to do, even if they don't know it. So I think men need to be included in a solution, and I think most men care. I think the other thing that is equally true, women care disproportionately. So you know who the power user is on the board list? It's still a woman. Not because men don't mm. care, but it's because if you're a woman who is, in my mind, a unicorn, you sit on boards, you are the CEO of your own company, and maybe you want another board seat. You know, you're my power user on the board list because you know exactly what it's like and what it took for you to get your board opportunity. You want to give it to other people. And by the way, you can also bring opportunity into our ecosystem. So do women care disproportionately? Yeah, they do. Is it a surprise that a woman started the board list? Probably not. That doesn't mean that I need to sink men in that equation. It's just, you know, we all have our own networks and our causes. And so I think women care disproportionately. And I think men care and want to know what the right thing is to do. And I think both of those things are okay. So this is company, what, three, four for you? Company three that I've started. And then I was the CEO of Polyvore. So I guess startup number, oh, and then I was at Jungly. So like startup number five, company founder number number three. Startup number five, company founder number three. What works? Are there a couple things that you're like, okay, what works yeah. and what doesn't work in terms of yeah. you've been doing this for 20 years, yeah. five companies. Yeah. Are there a few kind of themes that have that bubbled work. up yeah. where you're like, I definitely am never going to do that again, or I'm definitely always going to do this? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So what doesn't work? 
using money to solve product market fit does not work. The mantra is I just raise the money and then I'm going to solve product market fit. It's going to be this iterative thing. But what happens when you raise more money is you just spend more money. One of the most hardest things to do as a startup founder is to live in partial product market fit, which you can do for a long time if you can keep raising money. Maybe like, oh, this is, I mean... Because it's somewhat working, but it's not working all the way, right? And if you can still keep raising money, whereas I see companies that are capital constrained that were forced to figure out product market fit. Like I said, I mean, the boardless by its nature was capital constrained because nobody knew if it was a business when I started it. And so we had to figure out things, and we're still figuring things out. And then, by the way, there are people who today don't believe the board list will ever be a business. They just think I'm doing this for charity, you know? And I'm like, no, no. Actually, it turns out that diversity is both the right thing to do for the world, and it's good for business. But that's, a, yeah, again, right. that's an argument for another time. Um, but because it was capital constrained, it's had to figure things out. And as a result, it's been, you know, just way more focused on do we have product market fit and all these things earlier in its life cycle. But I've, ra- I've raised a lot of money in my lifetime and used money to try and solve product market fit. Not knowingly, just, you know, you keep kicking the yeah. can down the road. Raising um, money, I imagine, back to what we were talking about yeah. before, it adds a whole new imperative. It has a right? whole new imperative, and the imperative is growth. The imperative is never product market fit, sustainability, unit economics first. And that, now, I How think do you that know that, when you have product market fit? Because, I think you know uh, when you have product market fit... Uh, a couple of ways. First of all, I think uh, I think you test and can measure customer love. That's like clearly kind of piece number one. And you know you have product market fit when you don't have to apply dollars to growth, but rather you're reacting to growth. I mean, meaning, you know, the inbound interest is so high that you're raising dollars to kind of figure out how to hire a person to fill the demand, not raising dollars always chasing demand and not knowing how to create it. I mean, of course, everybody needs to chase demand. Even the best startups chase it. But when manufacture versus chase is a different thing. Um, uh, But and then I think on the do right. So that's my biggest do right. Like it's the headline always. On the do rights and the things that have served me really well, I spend a disproportionate amount of time on hiring more than most CEOs. I'm always taking the passive interview. I reach out on LinkedIn if I need to. uh, I think that's a that's a fundamental truth. The passive and, interview. The passive interview. I'm always like when people say meet somebody. If I'm a startup CEO, I will always take the meeting. Right. Even but but most people just hate hiring. They hate it. Like and I'm like yeah you can do that. But you know but if I look back on the things I'm most proud of at every startup, I mean the quality of talent at Joyous at at Yodely. I mean at Jungle. It's just tremendous and. I think it gives it gives credence to, and by the way, I learned that at Google too. Like in Google, you have the luxury of being able to hire well. At most other places, you just work really, really hard at it. Can you live a balanced life as uh, a startup? Yeah. You know, because it feels like there's a fetishization of, oh, I work a million hours a week and I never see my family. And I don't know if that is, how much of that is necessary and i think some of it must be but also you know it's a spectrum Spectrum. yeah you know i mean and of course women disproportionately get the balance question even more than men um so i have always thought that balance is very difficult and like measured in a day or a month it's like i like i mean if you look at my career they're phases right i mean they're just clear phases. Phases when I'm on, phases when I'm off, phases when. And, and I feel like I'm always, I feel like over the course of my lifetime, they will have been balanced. But at any point in time, I think it's really hard to be good at 10 things. I think you can be good at one thing. And something is always getting sacrificed. I always say to people like, like, you know, something is always getting sacrificed. And all you can do is tell the person who you're about to screw, not knowingly, whether it's your family or your children or work, you know, like, hey, like I'm about to go into this other hole and foxhole and it's going to suck for a while. 
and you just constantly feel guilty and the other person, you know, at least feels like you manage their expectations a little right. bit. Um, so no, I don't really think that balance is possible day to day. Um, but I think what is possible and certainly what I've learned over the years and I appreciate now as uh, somebody who is has a family and all those things, I also don't think that like FaceTime and fire drills and all of that shit is like, is worth it either. Like, you know, so if you are going to call somebody on the weekend and make them work crazy, like make sure it's worth it. Like, because you know, at some point I'm like, now, nah, like, don't tell me it's a fire drill if it's not a fire drill. Um, yeah. And I trust that if, and the people who come to work for me, I have their mind share. And if I have their mind share, I'm not measuring how many hours they're spending. So like at some point, like you kind of get over that stuff. Whereas I think you're, you're right. When you're young, it's kind of a badge of honor. Um, yeah. Though let's remember for millennials, a lot of it's not a badge of honor to work, you know, a hundred hours. They're just like, are you crazy? And I'm also not there either. I'm out, I sort of am like, yeah, you know what? When I was in my 20s, I just put my head down and I yeah. work like crazy. So I'm somewhere in the middle of all of that. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Sue Kinder for taking the time to chat. Thank you all for listening, as ever. And please, take a moment before you leave, before you go off and do something else. Stop on Apple Podcasts, give a rating, give a review, tell a friend. It really does help. So please do that. And look out for me. I will be in the newspaper, the Sunday Times, online, thetimes.co.uk on Twitter at Danny Fortson, on email danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. And every once in a while, you may even hear me on talk radio in the morning. Start doing a little radio thingy, coming in and giving a little, uh, a few little morsels from uh, the wild world of Silicon Valley. Anyhow, that is all for this week. I will see you next week. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye-bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.